Well, I always go in, get a roll or two, sit outside, and then get a tempura. Ah, okay. I'll, that's I'll, how I do it. Okay. That's how I know it. That's uh, what what I know is is just going in, getting I forget what they're called, some of the rice triangles, the triangles so, of rice. Some, yeah. Let's see some, what. They okay. Have. All right. Oh, this looks empty. Very empty. So I'm gonna get this mix because there's I'm, nothing else left. I, I'm gonna get my uh, onigiri right here. Just okay. three tuna onigiris. Sushi mix though. Okay. All right. That's enough for me. Tengo una. Okay, this looks good. I have my tempura. Un provecho. Provecho. All right. So we are at Mikasa. Mikasa. Not Suchi. not Mikasa as in my house. But well, I thought maybe they chose the name because. Is Mikasa something Japanese? I'm pretty sure because it's, it's it's a pretty common name for a store, at least for a Japanese store in North America. Mikasa. I don't know if it's because it, it's a brand name, a family. A, this is something that I have basically zero idea of. So we've we've gone inside. I've gotten my I've gotten my uh, onigiri, which I've been chowing down on. You've gotten your sushi and uh, sushi roll. And your tempura. Mm-hmm. So before we jump right into it, there's a couple of things I wanted to address now that we're going into our third episode. Okay. I listened to the first two episodes now that they're actually online. And I say like a lot. <laughs> I need to stop saying that. I, I used to not have that, that habit when I was speaking, but now I, I really do. Something funny I noticed. The, the other thing is you, you have much more experience in podcasts, I think, than I do. Just based on production value and based on producing things. I am not sure if this is true or not. This is just the impression that I got. What, what do you mean totally by wrong. production value? In terms of the theory of how to do a podcast or how to at least put a podcast up online. It's not my first. It's my first in English, which, well, I've listened to it now, also twice, because I do two, uh, two cuts, two edits, each episode, and I'm finally I I realize that my English is not, or at least my my accent, is not as non-German as I thought it was for the last 20 years. It was better 20 years ago. So, but It was better that, 20 years ago? Yes. So it was less German 20 years ago after I had spent a year in the United States. Hmm. At least that's what I think. Anyways, that's, that's, my, yeah. that's just one of these things that... Yeah, I'll listen to myself and think, okay could practice that, but I can't because I don't live 
in the United States. So it's the, it's the way it is. The funny thing is your accent isn't Mexican. You're not becoming more Mexican with your accent. No. I'm just becoming more indecipherable in my Spanish accent. I got a I got a new one the other day. I might have been more because of my beard than my accent. But they said, "Are you Arabic?" <laughs> I get that sometimes in New York, but haven't gotten that here in Mexico yet. But I think it may just be because of the beard. That yes, that was my sign from reality that it was time for a beard trim, I guess. No, I speak way too little um, Spanish to get any Mexican accent or even to... Uh, so I mostly speak German and English, actually, although I try to speak Spanish whenever I can, but just because of circumstances. So it's just the way it is. Who else do you speak German with aside from your wife? Um, well, naturally, because I had worked at the German school for a year, Many of our friends here either have left or speak German. Then I have, we're gonna meet uh, my friend Yashua uh, next weekend. And so I speak Spanish with him. But other than that, it's, it's it went away. The, the opportunities just didn't present. And at work, I work with Mexicans, but to get work done, and we didn't. It wasn't like it was clear that I would be working with them for many years. So in order to get work done, we settled on English for um, basically all of the time. And so that's the way it is. But I've learned enough Spanish to be, for the situation that I was in, I've learned enough Spanish, so I'm happy about that. It's not as much as I would have liked, but uh, we're planning to maybe in five to ten years go to another Latin American country again so it'll be another chance to learn some more so Mikasa Sushi to wrap this up it's a supermarket Japanese supermarket they prepare fresh sushi and other food and outside is a uh, on the weekends there's a grill they grill fish and meat and they have the tempura so these uh, Japanese soup with the what are the noodles called? Udon? Udon. And I love this. Really good. And not at all expensive and that's it's perfect. Now oh I wanted to check about the history of sushi in Mexico. Because in Mexico City the way I see it, there's a lot of sushi places. There's even uh, sushi uh, on the street, street food sushi, and uh, I think it's really good. It's the first time that or I've never had a lot of sushi. I don't know what good sushi is, what bad sushi is. I just, well, yeah, I know um, some places are better than others, but I've never had so much sushi than in the past three years. Interesting. And I mean, at Sushi Roll, that's one of the chains. On Tuesdays, or no, Monday through Wednesday, they have two for one. You get a roll for 100, 120 pesos, two for one. And so we regularly go out there with the two of us paying 400 to 500 pesos for and being absolutely stuffed. That That's a lot of fun. So, and then you can really eat a lot of sushi. 
So my knowledge of sushi is basically this place and sushi roll. I have admittedly, coming from New York, avoided sushi in Mexico City. But perhaps it's time to change that. So I read another thing. I was thinking about this on the way over, and that it's a very... If we're going to get racist, mm -hmm. I'm going to get racist. Sure. It's a very... Racist and sexist, actually. I'm going to get very racist and sexist here. It's a very male, white boy thing to just jump into something and do it without knowing how to do it, without doing any research on how to do it, without having any sort of okay. yeah. theory or guidelines on how to just do it. And that's what makes, I think, podcasts so popular. There's that joke on Twitter that I think most people have seen. Guy says, oh, I'm going to go record a podcast. And he asks his daughter, do you know what a podcast is? She says, is that that thing where you talk at nobody and nobody listens? <laughs> Father, my daughter knows exactly what a podcast is. <laughs> so and everybody has a podcast now. And if you have a name and if your career is over, you get a podcast. Because you know people, or at least a lot of, especially use American um, celebrities or minor celebrities now get a podcast. At times, that is very good because um, now that everything's said and done, I'm a fan of Lance Armstrong, the cyclist. Really? Yes. I did not know he has a podcast. And he has two, actually. One where he, yeah, he uh, talks to famous people, and that's not what I'm interested in. The Mark Maron format. Uh, yes. And there are a couple others. Uh, do you know, what's his name, Rich Roll? Is yeah. that a Okay, it's another. another. Um, but he also, um, so Lance Armstrong has another podcast called Stages, where they, he sits down with a radio guy and they record the podcast and they talk after each stage of the Tour de France, they talk about the stage. And for cyclist fans, that is actually really, really interesting. So I'm a big fan of that. I, I didn't, they did it the first time this year and I didn't know about it, but then I re, so I listened to it in October. But even that, it was interesting to hear what they had to say. And yeah, so that is really, I mean, nobody on US TV or German TV either, or French TV will ever talk to Lance Armstrong, give him the commentator's role. Right? He couldn't commentate on live TV because nobody will let him. Um, but he can do his own podcast. And I, that's, so that is one very good example of what people can do. Um, and he does it well, so I like that. But yeah, and here, yeah, this is not my first podcast. Um, at home, I'm struggling with the audio quality. So I still have to learn. But now I've been away. So uh, back in Germany, I'll have to ask some more of these very audio quality focused German podcasters. Very often, I have to tell myself to not go crazy. Um, it's better to get it out there and have it done and have these stories recorded than not. So that's the approach I'm taking right now. And yeah, the, the publishing with the... With the uh, Podlav plugin and how to get the podcast out there that is in using WordPress and stuff that's what I've been doing for many years.
So now's your time to pitch your other pitch your other podcasts. I'm preventing you from eating, but go ahead and go ahead and pitch pitch the other podcasts in German, which I would <clears throat> never listen to because I don't understand German yet. Well, everybody who listens to this podcast knows English, so I'm gonna pitch it in English. Does it make sense? And here we're in that reverse situation <laughs> that I find myself in in social gatherings where there are Americans that ha that don't know how to speak Spanish. And if they're classically boisterous, outgoing Americans, they'll dominate the conversation in English and people will speak in English. But if they're more reserved, quiet, shy, nervous around Mexicans that speak English and Spanish, the conversation will always revert back to Spanish and they'll be yes. even further excluded than I think they would have otherwise been in an English-only setting. So that being said, <laughs> if you want to go ahead and pitch it in German, be my guest. No, I don't want to. So I'm, I have two podcasts and they, so the release cycle is very long. Uh, first podcast was a necessity. I, I had to do it. I didn't know, uh, we didn't find any other person that would do it. And that's the podcast for the C3S. I, C3S, the um, Cultural Commons Collecting Society. So the organization that tries to establish a second collecting society society for musical rights in Germany alongside the GEMA. Now why is that necessary? Because there are people that might be listening to this that don't know anything about the you GEMA, did, that they've not tried to watch YouTube in Germany. Yeah, you, that actually is a bad example because it works now. Because they, um, they found an agreement with Google. Oh really? Yeah. Nobody knows the details, but right. you know, or at least I don't. Because lawyers, <sighs> probably. Yeah. Well, the 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 collecting of royalties for musical rights is something that happens over, all over the world. Uh, I think in the United States there's at least three of these collecting societies. Um, um, the big ones are ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. So. The, the idea is you write a song or you write the lyrics to the song and other people want to use it to play it themselves or to play a recording of this song and under current copyright law in Germany at least uh, you can't just do that you can't just use the the work of another person it's just how it is Without paying somehow. Yeah, you keep, well, you can't just just use it. You would have to talk. You you would need permission. Yeah, in whatever way you could pay them or. But if the the artist says no, you can't use that, then you can't do it. And to make a long story short, the the idea of a collecting society is to have a central organization that um, manages all the rights. Uh, or the usage rights to musical works or and other works for for other societies and so the the reality is that if I want to play a, uh, your song you, you Nick have written a song and recorded it and you are a mem member of one of these collecting societies then I can just go ahead and play this song in my own concert they love or played in the disco and from uh, the CD or Spotify but I have to pay for it, to you, to be able to use it. And to make things much easier, I pay the collecting society and the collecting society pays you. Um, 
that's basically it. Um, and there's many different uses of, of uh, musical works, and um, and so and there are many different tariffs. And well, let's say the GEMA is the the one that we have in Germany. And there are many complaints about the gamer, about democracy, and about who has influence, and if you know, a lot about the, the modern way of consuming music doesn't fit well into um, the system of the gamer. And so many people for many for, for many years have wanted an al an alternative, and that's really what the C3S aims to be—an alternative with a little bit uh, a different mindset. Uh, about doing this work. Um, one obvious example is uh, to really acknowledge and and encourage the use of uh, Creative Commons licenses. We could go on and on, but I but don't want briefly, to. Briefly, what is the C3S? That is the uh, a, um, an organization. Uh, European collective that tries to establish a second collective society in Germany. That's it. And I'm involved with that. I'm a founding member actually. I don't know how that happened. Uh, and then at one point I said, wow, we need a podcast. We need to talk to the people directly. And then turns out nobody wants to do this because it's work and, and then I had to do it. When we talked, and I mostly talk with Mike Michalke, who is uh, managing director of the C3S and definitely the um, one of the the key visionary brains and one of the visionaries behind that thing. Yes. And the second one it's called Tacos und Limetten, so Tacos and Lime. It's also in German. I talked to others, German-speaking. Uh, people living here in the city and ask them about how they see Mexico. Ah, okay. So, but there's there's been two episodes so far. Uh, I want to record four or five more in the in the time that I have left here. Um, they're all friends or, or acquaintances of mine right. and want to record some of their stories because I've heard many of their stories uh, at parties. Um, yeah, that's the idea there. So nothing long term but I think very interesting. And I don't talk a lot in those podcasts, so that's good. And we're already on our third episode of this podcast. You're listening to it right now, unless you somehow edit this particular section to be in the fourth episode, because we decided no, no, that no. we're gonna do two episodes in one recording session. Oh, you have a little thing in your, yep. Yep, it's out. My beard. Yeah, I hate it when stuff gets stuck. Yeah. In your um, yeah. Well, we've listened to feedback, and it also makes my life easier if we keep one episode to under an hour. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, because right right now, according to my timer, because I said we were, I was going to bring a timer in here. Oh. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Oh. That one of the repeating suggestions, a suggestion that keeps coming up in further research about podcasts is you have to try to rehook your audience back in every two minutes. And right now we're at roughly 19 minutes mm -hmm. and we haven't been following this rule because I've just brought it up. So how do you want to hook in 
I have no idea. The, the audience. It's okay. just a, I just am throwing that suggestion out there, and it's something that I'll be thinking about. We've been kind of floating yeah. through topics on a three to four minute today window, just as yeah, yeah just, just in, in the just in the past twenty minutes because we've we've covered several different things. Yeah, we've. That is true. Another thing is we should be dropping hints. I was searching for the technical term in my brain on this, but dropping hints as to what we're going to talk about. So on today's podcast, we are going to be revealing why the podcast is called Several Ways to Live. In Mexico City. In Mexico City. So on today's, and we actually, we actually, instead of, we, we've been getting slowly, slowly more professional about this. There is actually a document that we have been sharing online as far as our plans about this particular recording day. Yes. I'm going to read to you from uh, a book and I'm going to ask you a question. You don't already know okay. the question. And then we talk about you. And I'm going to uh, read from the book that's called Several Ways to Die in Mexico City. It's a an, an autobiography. Autobiography by Kurt Hollander, who is a uh, an American. Um, I actually did not reread this, but he moved here. Oh yeah, it's on the fourth he's, he's page. He's a journalist. If I I came to Mexico City in the summer of 1989, so he's been living here for a long while. And this book was published in 2012, and I read it on our first uh, vacation trip which was now almost exactly three years ago. Uh, we went to Masunte, obviously. Um, that was the first time. And I read it and it does not paint a very flattering picture of Mexico City. And I uh, gave it to Catherine later and she just stopped reading after 20 pages because it was so awful. Or because he was so whiny. Um, but I want so, to... so your wife does not suffer whiners? No, no, no. Um, I want to read from the first section, uh, but not all of it, just three of the six paragraphs. And then I'm going to ask you what you think. So, the end of our life is our final act. Unlike being born, a moment in which we are basically oblivious, death often catches us wide awake and in our full senses. Often, even at the peak of our existence. While we are all born more or less at the same age and in the same way, death can come upon us at any moment, in any place, and can happen in an infinite number of ways. In megacities such as Mexico City, where death-dealing elements are so highly concentrated, there's nothing natural about death anymore. And human beings no longer die from quote-unquote natural causes. Death is induced not so much by criminal activity and guns, but from the way the city's more than 20 million inhabitants modify their environment. A historical shift in the principal causes of death in Mexico City has occurred in recent decades. From diseases of poverty, such as infections, malnutrition, childbirth and maternal deaths, to chronic, degenerative, non-communicable Ill illnesses, such as circulatory diseases, cancer, and diabetes. This recent evolution of death reflects a transformation from a traditional rural existence to a modern urban consumer-oriented lifestyle, characterized by an excess of man-made substances in the air, 
water, food, cigarettes and alcohol. These days, most Chilangos will die slow deaths from diseases related to long-term exposure to their environment, which is just another way of saying that living in Mexico City long enough will kill you. And he didn't even bring up earthquakes. He did not bring up earthquakes. Um, he would now. Maybe. So my question to you is, how do you like living in Mexico City? The funny thing is you're catching me on a weird day. I, I've been... And so I have this script that automatically posts weird things to... Uh, to Twitter and then on Facebook, Instagram. Oh, that's when I don't want to, when I don't want to, because if I don't post on social media for a while, people ask me, "Nick, are you dead?" And I really don't like that question. I don't like being asked if I'm dead, because there's really only one answer that I can give to that question <laughs> without without somehow lying. I've been. I mean, we both. I, I hope I'm not outing you too much here, but we both have depressive tendencies, I'd say. Yes. I and it's coming down from the mania of doing all of this rescue work that I was doing and all this reconstruction work and all these other things. There, There is a mania to it. There's an insanity to it and there's a mania to it. At least doing it for weeks on end, more or less without stopping. And coming out of that, watching people return to their normal lives, watching the lack of planning that led to a lot of these problems resurfacing, and, and just coming down from your own mania is, is, is kind of, it's kind of depressing. Before the earthquake, I would say definitely yes. Shortly after the earthquake, I, I would say definitely yes. Now, I'm not sure. I know I enjoy living here. The question is, why? I'll, and that's another weird thing about Mexico City is that people ask, well, how did you end up here? Well, I think it's pretty well established how I ended up here. And that reason for me being here is no longer a valid reason for me being here. And in considering today's draft, which is, I think, going to appear in the next episode, yes, uh, as we planned, there are lots of reasons. I'm not sure which or any of them are correct. But I'm not making any effort. I don't feel any strong reason or motivation to leave. Mm -hmm. The other places on the planet that I could go all have their drawbacks. They're either too toxic, too boring, too depressing. So to wrap up a very convoluted answer to your question, I don't know. But I think yes. It's a it's a function of living in interesting times. I don't have a reason to be here. I don't have a reason to leave. I wonder how, for how many people, the outlook on the city changed after the earthquake. Because I know of people who've, who are still dealing with it emotionally uh, to this day. And I have just... For the earthquake thing, that actually reinforced something in me, something negative about the city. Because whenever something slightly moves, even if it's just 
my strong heartbeat while lying, uh, lying on the sofa and I think maybe it something shakes I think earthquake at night when I, when I lie in bed and uh, our neighbor uh, enters the pocket garage with his heavy motorcycle and the building shakes I think earthquake and sometimes I sit at my desk and something moves and I have to look outside if maybe the trees move or, or the lamps move or any any post move and when they don't I know it's not earthquake but that's how I can tell I, I have a similar version of that in that sometimes I'll hear the alerta sismica mm -hmm. in my head not that it's the warning alarm in Mexico City that gives you, depending on where the earthquake comes from, this last earthquake was actually triggered manually after the earthquake had already begun, but normally it will sound roughly 10 to 15 seconds before the force of an earthquake arrives in Mexico City. Uh, if, you're, um, if we're lucky, 50, 50 seconds. So the oh, one really? on September, when was September 9th? Yeah. It sounded 50 seconds before. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because that was uh, uh, that originated in the south of uh, Chiapas, no, uh, Oaxaca. No, Oaxaca. both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, from what I understand, some of the waves, the the seismic waves, are faster, but without much force, and that's what they used to start the alarm. And so these these uh, different waves arrive before the actual. Uh, catastrophic uh, seismic waves and yeah and that's why and from how I understood it the earthquake in Puebla was just too close to trigger the automatic alarm it was it, well, I mean it was too close and they weren't there there were no meters oh there are no automatic meters in that area that the alerta sismica is an entirely automated yeah. I mean almost entirely automated system yeah, but because it was the central Mexico earthquake yes. in a zone that they didn't realize had that much seismic activity in it, the closeness of it and the direction of it made detecting it with the way the system was set up unfeasible. Yeah, that it was it was triggered manually after the after they had seen what was going on and the earthquake had begun. But I hear that sound sometimes in my head. Mm -hmm. But my building's always moving. I, when there's a heavy truck going by yeah. down the street, my, yeah. the building will sway in a very light motion, similar to a regular earthquake. My Venetian blinds. But you will, weren't here. I was here for the September 9th one. Yes. Which, I, which was, it was the strongest earthquake I felt in Mexico City. No, I was not here for the. I was not here for the big one. I, because I didn't have that feeling after the September 9th, but certainly after the big one. Yeah, the September 9th one. There was when we went to Baja California, uh, that feeling was gone. I didn't fear it anymore. Probably the same in Masunte, yeah? mm -hmm. where we will go in less than two weeks. And in less so, than yeah, two weeks, is... I'll be in Dusseldorf. Oh, yeah. We should, I, I'm wondering if it would be a wise idea to... We'll throw this one out to the audience. If it would be a wise idea to tr attempt a podcast while I'm in Germany and you're in Mexico. I know how it works. Do you have a laptop? Do you have some sort of headset? I do. I, do. I, have, I have both of these things. Yeah. Um, 
so we'll, we'll go for it. Uh, but while we're while we're on the subject of of reader questions, and I added this one to the document kind of late, the difference between tequila and mezcal. Do you want to explain? And then I, I, I want I have I have my explanation okay. prepared. Okay. Good. I want to hear your explanation. <laughs> I want to just jump in and correct you because we haven't had a fight on our on this podcast no, yet. No, I think it's yet. about time we had not a fight. Yet. Maybe we won't fight on this one. Am I catching you totally off guard with this question? No, because okay. I've answered the question before. Okay, so maybe not in English, but go, go ahead. So, um, mezcal is a liquor made from the agave. Is that also in English? Yeah. Agave. Yeah. Um, tica, uh, tequila is technically also a mezcal because it's made from agave. A, a very specific kind of agave. For mezcal, you get in uh, many, many states uh, of Mexico, wherever they grow agave. And um, the rules, there are certain numbers. You do, I think for mezcal, it's, you need to use 80% agave and then the rest you can do whatever. But most uh, mezcal is uh, made with 100% agave and that than just water, the rest is water. Um, tequila is, uh, to name your liquor tequila, you have to follow certain rules. And that includes that you can only use the blue agave, the maguey, from the state of Jalisco and some small parts of other states. That, but that is basically it. I've seen how they make uh, mezcal. I have not been to, yeah, I have been to the town of Tequila, but I didn't visit the, the distilleries. From what I saw, the most most tequilas are produced in an industrial fashion. And if, when you go to Oaxaca, you get a lot, a lot of mezcal that is practically artisanal. And we've visited one place, uh, one, I don't remember the name. It was something like cockpit. So the, the cock, yeah. Do you know the Spanish word? Hmm? No, for for the place where they make mezcal, the mezcal. No, Mez I, I actually Me don't. It's not mezcaleria. No. Okay, and uh, so we have seen the whole process, which can be very archaic. <laughs> um, in includes putting the, the agave into the ground, um, cooking roasting them, it. roasting it just like barbacoa. Yeah? And then uh, having a horse uh, drag a millstone basically over it to, to crush all the agave and put it in big tanks, put, add water and let it just ferment. In, not in a, a sterile environment at all. Uh, we tasted some of the, the roasted agave and just the rest we just so we spit out no you can't eat it but you can suck on it and the rest you just put on the pile uh, again that gets put into the um, pot yeah and then whatever comes out of those pots pots um, they distill two times for uh, mezcal sometimes a third time and they add a, a chicken breast into the apparatus. And that is the mezcal sugar, which can taste really awful or really good. But that's it. So they do all kinds of stuff. But usually just two times and that's it. It's not very complicated. It's very clear. Um, clear liquid. Sometimes they age it in, in barrels. 
yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a short version of how uh, you make mezcal. And did I miss any differences? Yes, you missed the most quintessential difference. Okay. And that tequila that they drink in most of the rest of the world is an intoxicant meant to make gringos crazy and very hungover. <laughs> mezcal, which is, is starting to be appreciated in, in the rest of the world, but mezcal, there's a lot, even though it's an inherently simpler beverage, a simpler alcoholic beverage, it's always clear tequila can come in any number of different shades and colors. And in, in mezcal, there's a slight variation. Yes, tequila is a kind of mezcal. But if you're talking about a regular, clear mezcal, my experience with mezcal has been much more positive than my experience with tequila. Okay. And that I think don't... It, tequila is pretty easy to dismiss. It, I can't speak to the, the flavor profiles of the different things, but tequila is something... It's Tequila for export that you know in the rest of the world is harsh and pure. Mezcal will tend to be purer, less mass-manufactured, a more... I mean, it's the difference. It's a clear spirit. It's a good, clear spirit that if you, if you, have, if you have had negative experiences with tequila, give mezcal a shot. Mm-hmm. If you can find 400 conejos, 400 rabbits, I, I think it's still known as 400 conejos in the rest of the world, that's a good mezcal to sort of start off with and then adjust whether you want a smokier flavor, whether you want a, a sweeter flavor, um, but but don't don't outright write off mezcal as a whole because you've had negative experiences with tequila. The only tequila that I've known until coming here, I, one exception, but what you get in the supermarket in Germany is Sierra tequila. I don't even know where they make that stuff. Probably in tequila, but it or is... What's, what's in it? Yeah, what's in it is probably waste from making a real tequila. So for anybody in Germany, Sierra tequila is not tequila. That is the stuff where you need the salt and the lime because you can't bear it otherwise. That's not... It's just not tequila. Um, so that's one thing. Um, tequila, mezcal... I, I, you prefer one or the other. Uh, I actually prefer... And if you prefer tequila, you're crazy. Okay, I prefer tequila because it's easier to drink. It's just, it's, it's not as... Mezcal comes in very, very many different flavors and they are very strange sometimes. They can, just like with whiskey where you have the very, very turfy... Is that turfy? No, torfic. That's not an English word. Um, we should make it an English word. <laughs> Turfy is now, and you have to explain the definition of the, of the German word. Anybody who's had whiskey, uh, or who knows whiskey in German, knows the word Torfic, but I cannot translate it right now. We're, we're, we're going to have to make up a definition so for the Turfy. La Froig, no, La Froig is, I don't know, La Froig whiskey? Scotch. Pastor La Froig. It's just, it's just that's, Inside for example. reference. Okay, whatever. Sorry. I'm, no. <laughs> But what's very interesting is why there are so many flavors of mezcal, um, at least what's what we learned when we went to Oaxaca. Uh, because first of all, you can use any agave, yeah. So you use different agaves or a mixture, 
of agaves. And then it always depends on where the agave grows, yeah, which which soil, um, how much rain, etc. Uh, and in Oaxaca, you get everything. You get stone, stony uh, earth, or other earth. I don't know. And you can get everything. And if you go to a mezcaleria and try many different, none taste alike. The the industrial tequila is just it works for me. From time to time, I'll have a mezcal, but I can't. I don't want to get drunk on mezcal. I can get drunk on beer and tequila, um, but not on mezcal. So, so to bring this, to bring our little diversion to a close, I'm gonna flip the question back around on you. Do you like living here? For a long time, I was in the I don't know camp. I did not know if I liked it or not, and I was thinking about it. Uh, but two, I haven't explained yet why I'm here at all. And uh, so we, my, Catherine, my wife and I, we came here pretty much exactly three years and four months ago, August of 2014. Catherine is a, a school teacher. And she always wanted to, after her uh, studies, she always wanted to leave uh, uh, Germany to again see something else. And we decided together to go to a Latin American country to learn a new language that we actually could learn. And that just leaves Spanish for us. And we ended up in Mexico City. And luckily for me, I got a job at the German school as well for uh, for one year because otherwise it is absolutely possible to stay here for a long time on a tourist visa <coughs> but you really I didn't want to do that I, it would have been much harder so we've been here for three years and four months and honestly we are counting the weeks. No, I'm counting the months. Uh, yesterday I found out Catherine is counting the weeks. She has a calendar on our door and marked with the weeks until the week that we are going to leave. That sounds harsh because... For, I mean, for, for good or for... <laughs> for good. Okay. No, no, yeah. No, uh, we came here uh, and Catherine had a two-year contract and we prolonged that contract, we renewed that contract for another two years, um, which was which was the absolute right decision. So we could leave after two years, but we felt that yeah, we should check this, check out this country a little more and enjoy the time here a little longer. Because if you thought about that, if you leave after two years, then the first the first year is hard. The first year is uh, is, is is very different. It's you have a new job, you have a new country, new. Uh, uh, new language, new friends, yeah, and uh, that's always hard. That's even if you move in within Germany to another city, that is something that uh, is work and is hard. Back then, when we just discussed this about leaving after two years, that the last year that you're here, you are already thinking about being back in Germany. Yeah, we are looking for jobs. We're thinking about where to go, we, we, how we organize our, our move there, we get our stuff there, uh, a lot of stuff. So many thoughts are going towards Germany already. So, so we, we prolonged our stay here, which was, which was absolutely right. And but somehow since the summer, definitely, we 
we are tired of living here. We want to go back. And there's the city. It got to me. It's. I think for most of the time, I always said, "Okay, I, the city is nice. I, I like living here, but I'm not going to stay here forever." That was absolutely clear. And two more things: we want, we would like to have a dog. We don't want to have a dog here. Even more. If we had kids, it would not be here. So I don't want to raise a kid here. Shall I list the number, uh, the things that I think about every day? Why I want to leave? I think I, I, I don't. I don't think that would be a good thing to do. Going into our next episode, where the draft is reasons Mexico City rocks. My draft board is very short this time. I think. Yeah, I think we have to go with with three things on the draft board, and and my the. the the funny thing about my draft board is that all three things of mine... Uh, you only have three things. I only have three things. <laughs> all three things of mine could also be used for the episode entitled Why Mexico City Does Not Rock. <laughs> Perhaps we would add another word aside from another phrase to replace does not rock for something much more much more negative sounding. But I, I didn't I didn't know that. I, I was unaware that you were that you were counting the weeks. The last I heard you were still pretty happy living here, but I think at the time you were having that conversation, I was I was still very much in the zone here, very much in this deal. But that's that's the the privilege that we have to recognize in this instance. And you should always end recognizing your privilege, being the good little social justice warrior that I am. Let's go ahead. Uh, that we we have the option to leave. Yes. And that the miseries of the people who don't have this option are much worse. And they don't have the option to leave. So that's the that's the death episode <laughs> where we go dark. In the third episode of the season, suck them in with two lighthearted ones, then go dark in the third episode.